Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Matthew, chapter 23, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, we're going to read from verses 1 through 12 of Matthew, chapter 23. Uh, Matthew, chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. One of the, uh, my favorite stories that I heard Chuck Swindoll tell is about a group of boys who decided to form a club. They had a treehouse, and they decided to form a club. And the first thing, uh, the order of business of this new club is to form the rules for the club. And they made rules. They wrote three of them down, and they hung them in the clubhouse. Rule number one, nobody act too big. You know what, they're thinking about this, right, with this rule. They don't want any bullies in the club. They don't want anybody bossing anybody around. They don't want anybody to always demand their own way. Nobody act too big. Now, rule number two, nobody act too small. You know how this could be a problem? If, if you have an idea, speak up. If you have a question, speak up. If, if you make a mistake and something doesn't go the way you think it's supposed to or you, you, you mess something up, don't worry about it. Come back. Keep going. Nobody act too small. Rule number three, everybody act medium. <laughs> this is a passage of scripture that we just read this morning that tells where Jesus tells his people that in his people, in his family, everybody acts medium. And he gave this warning, this uh, admonition in the context of um, addressing a group of men who were acting big. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the problems with acting too big. Now, we should think for just a minute, reorient ourselves to where we are in Matthew chapter uh, 23. It's a good exercise when you're reading a book of the Bible, especially a long narrative like Matthew, to think about what's happening in the passage and how does it relate to what's come and gone and um, how the pieces fit together. What does the author intend for his readers, for his original readers and for those of us who picked this up 2,000 years later? Uh, Matthew chapter 23 is a long message from Jesus. It's uh, 39 verses, one of his longest in the Gospel of Matthew extended talks. 
And remember that Matthew organized his sermon, uh, his book, around long talks from Jesus. There's five sermons around which he organizes his material. There's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. There's the Sermon on Mission in Matthew 10. There's the Sermon of Mysteries in Matthew 13. There's the Sermon of Community in Matthew 18. And then we have this section here from 23, 1, all the way to the end of chapter 25, a long lesson from Jesus. And one of the questions that Matthew, uh, people who study this book ask is, is Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 and 25 part of one long sermon from Jesus? Is that how we're supposed to read this? If that's true, then, then the theme of that long sermon would be judgment. Judgment on the people of Israel and then judgment on the nations in general. That, that would work. Or it's possible that what we have at Matthew 23 is the tail end of Jesus' controversy with the chief priests, uh, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Remember, they've asked him some hard questions. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to fool him, uh, trying to make him look incompetent or uh, foolish. And Jesus, he answers all their questions so easily. He's not to be outwitted. And, and the, maybe then, in light of that, chapter 23 is the conclusion of that conflict that he's had with this, these men, where he tells them what's what. That's possible. Remember some of Matthew's concerns. Remember, Matthew is trying to wrestle with this question. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why are there not more Jewish followers of Jesus? Uh, and, and he answers that question in a number of ways. One of the things he does is he tells us about Jesus and his qualifications to be the Messiah, even from the beginning of the book. He's got the right lineage. He was born in the right place. He's the subject of prophecy. Jesus fits the mold of the Messiah perfectly. The reason there are not more Jewish followers of Jesus is not because Jesus is a bad Messiah. Or think too, Matthew might have in his mind his concerns, uh, concerns or questions that are raised about the growing separation between these early Christians that he's writing to and the synagogue and the Jews. Remember, the first Christians were Jews who met to, to worship in the temple courtyards. And when Paul would go to evangelize a new city, he would walk into a synagogue and begin teaching there. But over time, there's becoming an increasing separation between Christians and Jews, and, and Matthew's writing about that. One of the things that this chapter helps us understand in answer to both of those concerns is that uh, there's not more Jewish followers of Jesus, and the separation is happening because the Jews at this time are being led by some real scoundrels. Uh, you should understand, too, as we come to this chapter, that this passage is has been accused of being one of the most anti-Semitic chapters in all of the gospel. Because Jesus is, uh, well, he is fierce in his criticism of these Jewish leaders. It seems so out of character. We're going to see it in particular, Lord willing, next week when we get into the rest of chapter 23. Jesus is just going to be blistering in his condemnation of these men. And he's, he's, he's not being anti-Semitic. He's actually acting very much like an Old Testament prophet. It's one of the roles that Jesus has. He's a prophet who speaks truth from God. And he speaks very much, he sounds very much like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Amos in this chapter. And look to how it ends. 
Uh, look at Matthew 23, 37. We'll get to it later, but Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her eggs and you were not willing. Look at your house, it is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here, he's heartbroken. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to me. As we pick up this passage today, one of the things that we learn from it is we hear the warning in Jesus' words. It's a warning that's targeted especially at those who would seek to be influential in the body of Christ for Christ's sake. And he's thinking of, uh, we, I'm thinking this morning of pastors, elders, future elders, Sunday school teachers, growth group leaders, Awana leaders, those who have our pyro volunteers, those who have some sort of influence for Christ's sake, here are some warnings for you from Jesus. There's particularly dangers involved in trying to influence others for the sake of Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about today. I want to talk to you about how to act big and, and, and tell you, if you're going to represent Jesus, here are some of the dangers, here are some of the temptations that you might face. Number one, don't practice what you preach. If you want to act big, don't practice what you preach. Um, this is a warning for these religious leaders or about these religious leaders, but it actually, Jesus here is touching on something that happens in churches very much like ours. Ours is a church where we love the teaching of the Bible. We want to hear what the Bible says. That is our strong emphasis. Tell me, tell us, what does the Bible say? Help me understand what the Bible says. And sometimes it is possible to spend so much time focused on teaching the truth that there's not as much focus on living the truth. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor, and look what he wrote about this. It's a, it's a well-crafted paragraph, but listen. It is an obvious error for all to see and those ministers of the church who make such a wide gulf between their preaching and their living. They will study hard to preach exactly and yet study little or not at all to live exactly. All the week long is little enough time to study how to speak for two hours. <laughs> I'll just point that out. All the week long is little enough time to study how to speak for two hours and yet one hour seems too much time to study how to live all week. They are loath to misplace a word in their sermons, yet they think nothing of misplacing affections, words, and actions in the course of their lives. Oh, how curiously I have heard some men preach, and how carelessly have I seen them live. Johann Albrecht Bengel, it's not up there, but uh, Johann Albrecht Bengel said something that I think is worth thinking about this point in time. He said to his theology students, Apply yourself wholly to the Bible and apply the Bible wholly to yourself. You should notice, uh, you should note that, that you, you know this, I'm sure, this, this warning uh, from Jesus about practicing what you preach is actually, um, he, he has issues, James issues a similar warning to those who listen. So Matthew 23 might be people for me, uh, might be for people like me on this side of the pulpit. 
But James 1.22 is for people like you on your side of the pulpit. Look at James 1.22. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Practice what you hear, in other words. Now, let's pick up the text here. Jesus says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or not. I read it in one source, but there was apparently a tradition, an old tradition, that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, God gave him not only the law, the word to teach to the people, but God gave Moses a chair in which he was supposed to sit in and teach. In those days, you would sit down to teach the Bible. And and supposedly on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses a chair. I'm not sure what happened to that chair, but I do know Uh, I'm not sure if that tradition is true, but I do know that in ancient synagogues in Jesus' day, there was in the synagogue a bench, a seat that looked very much like this, and they would refer to this part of the auditorium, of the the room in which they would meet, as Moses' seat. And the the preacher for the day, or the teacher for the day, would sit in that chair in particular to teach God's word. It was a sign of his authority to, because he was teaching from Moses, Moses' seat. Now, there's questions about verse 3 and what Jesus means here. He says, you must be careful to do everything they tell you because they're sitting in Moses' seat. Now, the question is, Jesus is so critical of what the Pharisees say at other points in time. So is he really commending them? He, he's so critical of their teaching. It's possible that Jesus is commending them because there are times that they actually say what Moses said, and when they're saying what Moses said, you should listen to them. That's possible, that he's upholding the value of teaching, Um, even when it's done by these, and the word's not in the Greek, but I'll use it, clowns. It's possible. Or another suggestion, Don Carson makes a suggestion, is that Jesus is being ironic here or almost to the point of sarcastic, um, which happens to be my love language. But so um, he says, maybe he's speaking, there's no tone in the Bible. Maybe Jesus is saying, you know, they sit in Moses' seat, so you better listen to everything they say. Maybe he's being ironic, almost sarcastic. Maybe. I'm not sure. The problem, regardless of of how we understand Jesus there, what's clear is that he's concerned uh, about their practice. Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, we should be honest, all of us who teach the Bible at this point in time, neither do I. I. Every Sunday... I say more than I can possibly live. There's a story of a woman who was greeting her pastor at the back of the auditorium, this senior saint in the church, and she turned to this young man and she said, oh, pastor, you preach the gospel so beautifully. Your life must just be wonderful. And he said, well, I thank you, but you should understand that I can preach more gospel in five minutes than I can live in five years. So all of us, struggle here. But the point is that Jesus is making is if you're trying to influence people for Jesus' sake, you have to give careful, careful thought excuse me, to how you live. If I were to sit down with our pyro student leaders, they're a fine group of men and women. 
working with our 7th through 12th graders, and I said to them, do you believe that the Bible is important uh, in the lives of our 7th through 12th graders? All of them, every single one of them would say, absolutely, yes, they would affirm that 100%. So then the question comes, the challenge comes for them, is when it's time to play a game, think about the contrast that might result from uh, hey, it's time to play a game. I love this. I'm going to scream and shout and, and, and fight my way through this to win. The difference between that and then, oh, we're going to open the Bible. Okay. Don't shout your way through dodgeball and yawn your way through the Bible. There's practice what you believe. Or think about our fine men and women who teach our Sunday school classes the most important part of your preparation every week to teach Sunday school in this church is the part in which you think about how the lesson you, before you applies to your own life. It's the most important part of your preparation. Don't let it be, friends, don't let it be, dear brothers and sisters, that on Sunday morning, you color with children a picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you say to them, you can trust God these men went into the fire and they trusted God and God kept his promises. Don't do that on Sunday and then on Tuesday night, stay up all night worrying because you're not sure how you're going to pay the bills that just came in the mail. The most important part of your preparation is when you think about how this lesson applies to your own life. If you want to act big, don't practice what you preach. Secondly, if you want to act big, Place heavy burdens on others. Place heavy burdens on others. Now, verse 3 says they don't practice what they preach. And, and then verse 4, Jesus begins to give some examples of uh, they're not practicing what they preach. And he talks about burdens that he places, they, they place. Verse 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, burdens, and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, by heavy burdens, cumbersome loads, Jesus is talking about the practice of what you did if you were getting a pack animal ready to go on a trip or if you were sending a, a servant with a load somewhere. You would take everything that you had and you would pack it very carefully into a pile and then you'd wrap it up in a, in a bag or some cloth or something so that it could be easily transported. And then you would move it onto the pack animal very carefully, loading it on that animal so it could uh, carry it uh, with ease, with as much ease as possible. And Jesus says, the Pharisees, in their teaching, they take heavy loads that they don't pack very well, and they put them on people's shoulders, and they don't do anything to help them at all. Now, think how differently this is from what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 about himself. Remember what he said? Very well-known verses. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is heavy and cumbersome. Jesus' burden is light. Or think of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I think about these verses. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Then verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
Followers of Jesus lift burdens. They don't put burdens down on people. Now, by heavy burdens, Jesus might be thinking here about the tendency that the Pharisees had to add to the commands of the Bible. They had this practice, and they called it fencing the law. Fencing the law. If the commands of the law were here, let's put more commands around them so that you don't even come close to breaking the commands. So, for example, if it's a Sabbath rule that you can't walk more than two miles, let's make our own law that says you can't walk more than one mile because if you only walk one mile, you won't even come close to breaking the two miles. And, and they add these commands, Jesus says, without lifting a finger, without any sort of encouragement, without any sort of mercy or grace or help or understanding, just law, just law, just rules. That's his concern here. We recognize that it's also possible to teach the commands that are in the Bible this way with heaviness. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. We were singing songs very much like we were singing this morning, celebrating God's great mercy, God's great kindness to us. Um, we were thinking about uh, how we are free through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. I mean, uh, this morning, what love could remember, what no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. God is omniscient and he knows everything. And if there's one person uh, who can remember and recount all of our sins, it's God. If there's somebody who, who could list to you all the things that you have done wrong, it's him because he knows them all. But his mercy is more. His mercy is greater. His mercy is more. We sing those songs. We were singing those songs a couple weeks ago, and, and I was standing in the back singing along, and it occurred to me, my sermon that morning was about the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I thought to myself, I wonder if my message is going to match the tone of the songs. If I'm going to be putting burdens or celebrating God's kindness. Uh, Oswald Chambers said this, the spirit of God is always the spirit of liberty. The spirit that is not of God is the spirit of bondage, the spirit of oppression and depression. The spirit of God convicts, oh, it does, he does. The spirit of God, he does convict vividly and tensely, but he is always the spirit of liberty. Now look at this sentence, it's worth remembering. God who made the birds never made bird cages. It is men who make bird cages. And after a while, we become cramped and can do nothing but chirp and stand on one leg. God who made the birds never made bird cages. When we get out into God's great free life, we discover that that is the way God meant us to live, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Do you teach the commands of God in a way that is liberating and freeing and joyful? Or are you laying heavier burdens? And think about it maybe a little bit like this. Thanksgiving is coming and you're maybe going to go to your cupboard and get down your recipes and, and their rules on that card for how to make a pumpkin pie. 
And you got to follow the rules. And maybe when you're following the rules of making your pumpkin pie, you're thinking about the people who are going to sit around the table. And, oh, this is the first time that your boyfriend's parents have eaten one of your pies. And, oh, 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 I hope it's okay. And, you know, your sister, she, or, or maybe you're thinking your sister, she's hosted Thanksgiving for 32 years, and this is the first time finally it's going to come to your house. And what is she going to say about your turkey? It's going to be too dry. You know she's going to say that. Oh. And you bake the pie, you bake the pie, you follow the rules, chiefly thinking about the fact that you don't want to disappoint people. You don't want to discourage them. You don't want to hear their criticism. So you're going to follow the rules so that you get it right, so that people aren't mean to you. That's one way I suppose you can make a pumpkin pie. How much better would it be if when you take down that recipe from uh, your, your cupboard, you smile because you recognize your grandmother's handwriting because it's her pumpkin pie recipe. And you start thinking about all those Thanksgivings that you sat around her table and her, in her dining room with that horrible wallpaper. But you sat there with, with your relatives and grandma came, she, you know, um, she baked that pie and she had on her apron because that's what grandmas do and, and short sleeves because it's November, but she's been in the kitchen all day and it's hot and she brings that pie and her, you know, her arms are waving kind of because she's, she's old and she's bringing, bringing the pumpkin pie and she's going to set it down and she cuts the pie with her grandmother's pie knife, and you think about that you have now, it's, it, it's come, you have her grandmother's pie knife, and, and now you got her rules, her recipe for making the perfect pie, and you're thinking about your own grandchildren that are going to sit around your table, and how much joy you want to share with them. Your grandmother loved you with a piece of pumpkin pie, and now you can love your children, your grandchildren, with a piece of pie. You're following rules. The recipe is right there. It tells you exactly what to do. How are you following those rules? Are you following those rules out of the overflow of your joy? Or are you following those rules out of fear? Do you take up the commands of the Bible under the warm light of the love of God? Or do you take up the commands of the Bible with fear? If you're a follower of Jesus... If you've turned and trusted in him, Jesus has already accomplished for you all that is necessary for you to be accepted and pleased and pleasing to God. God is eminently pleased with you because of the Lord Jesus. F.B. Meyer, another preacher who lived in Great Britain a hundred years ago, said, be certain that even though your repeated failures and sins have worn out everyone else, they have not exhausted the infinite love of God. You have a spotless record in heaven. Your report card has all A's. It's already been filed. It's already hanging on God's refrigerator in heaven, and your name is on it. It's a spotless record because Jesus, he finished the course for you. He already took all the tests. He already uh, completed all the quizzes. He wrote the papers. He did all the labs. He did them absolutely perfect. And your record in heaven is perfect. It's all done. And, and, and God has no more wrath for you. It was poured out in full on Jesus. 
There's no more because Jesus died paying the penalty for your sin and he satisfied God's wrath in whole. No more wrath for you. These commands in the Bible are not a test. They're light and they're life. And now we can speak about the beauty of holiness. I don't want to be the sort of preacher who lays heavy burdens on you. I want you to take up these commands like, as I was talking to a friend of mine this week, like sailing. I want you to come to church on Sunday so that from the scripture, I can help you the best I can to set your sails and to set the tiller so that you can catch the wind of the Holy Spirit and move in progress in following the Lord Jesus. It's possible for you, brothers and sisters, to not be anxious about anything. It's possible for you to learn how to control your body in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. It is possible for you to use your tongue to glorify, to, to glorify God and to encourage other people. It's possible for you to do that because of what Jesus has done and because of the power of the Holy Spirit. People who act big add burdens. They don't bring life and light and encouragement. Now, number three, act how to act big. Make your faith a performance. Make your faith a performance. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. And then he mentions four things. Wide phylacteries, long tassels, seats of honor, and greetings in the marketplace. Now, this is a very hierarchical culture that Jesus is speaking in, uh, into. And, and when you would walk around the marketplace, your uh, uh, position in society would be established by how elaborately people greeted you. And your position in society would be evident by how good a seat you had in the synagogue or at banquets. And Jesus talks about phylacteries and tassels. Now, a phylactery is a box that you would tie onto your forehead, and inside the box would be uh, portions of Scripture. Here's a Jewish man, even contemporarily today, there are uh, Jewish men uh, who wear phylacteries, and you can see the phylactery on his head, and you can see also the long cord where he has tied it uh, around his arm, and the box, you might not be able to see it, is resting there on his bicep. This phylactery, uh, you would wear this when you pray and sometimes out in public. And it's a literal interpretation, a literal application of Deuteronomy 6.8. Deuteronomy 6.8 says, tie them, these commands, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So that's what a phylactery is. And again, you would wear it for prayer, but apparently these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, wear them out in public, and they make them as big as they possibly can. You know, look at that guy's phylactery. He's not just got a, a verse or two, and he's got the whole book of Deuteronomy there up on his forehead. That's amazing, right? Wide phylacteries. This is how seriously I take the Bible. The tassels are mentioned in, in Numbers uh, 15. Look at Numbers 15, 37 to 39. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts. Again, here's a contemporary Jewish man wearing his long tassels, and you can see a picture there. It's a reminder to follow the commands of God, these tassels. 
Jesus wore tassels like this. Matthew chapter 9 tells us about a woman who reached out and touched Jesus' tassels for healing. Pharisees, their tassels are extra long and extra big because they're extra holy. You should see that and be impressed. There's this public expression of their faith, but there's not much more to their public expression to their faith. Think about how different this is from what Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 6. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, a couple months ago, Luke and I watched a, a movie. It was a biopic of a man by the name of Brandon Burlesworth. The movie is called Greater, and it focused on his faith as a follower of Jesus. I'm not a big fan of most Christian movies. They're often very cheesy. But uh, this one, uh, Luke and I enjoyed. Brandon Burlesworth was a walk-on football player for the Arizona Razorbacks. And he played uh, um, for that college team. And then afterwards, he was actually recruited to play for the NFL. And he was tragically killed in a car accident before his NFL career began. But Brandon Burlesworth was a faithful follower of Jesus. And there were two themes in this movie about his life. One of them was how his faith influenced him as a college student, as a player. And then the other theme was how hard Brandon Burlesworth worked as a player. There's truth to this, I'm sure, of every college athlete, of every professional athlete. How long is a, a college football game on Saturday afternoon? Three and a half hours, maybe. You watch for three, three and a half hours. Brandon Burlesworth uh, spent 10 times that easily late at night, early in the morning, practicing, working on his footwork, exercising, getting ready to play. You didn't see 95% of Brandon Burlesworth's football career. And Jesus here is commending this, this faith. He's commending to us faith that is not a performance, but that takes reality behind the scenes. Here's how to act big. Do what you do as a follower of Jesus just to be seen. Number four, how to act big. Promote yourself over others. Promote yourself over others. Now, you notice here the audience changes in the text. Verse one says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Then verse 13, he speaks directly to the teachers and the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, to you. And then verse eight, though, he talks to, I think, just his disciples, but you. Pharisees love to be greeted by being called rabbi, but you, you, it's different with you. He mentions three things. You are not to be called rabbi, verse 8. You are not to call anyone on earth father, verse 9. Verse 10, you are not to be called instructor. Now, this requires some careful thought as we think about this passage. Jesus trained his disciples to be teachers. He told them, teach people to obey the commands I've given you. He trained them to be teachers, and yet he instructed them here not to be called teacher. Hmm. Think about that. 
Or look at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, where um, Christ talks about what he did in the church. Uh, Paul writes about what Christ has done. Verse uh, 11 of Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ has given teachers to the church, and they have a very important role to fill in, in that. But be careful, be careful with your calling or we read from 1 Peter chapter 5, Carol did, about elders. Elders are God's good gift to the church, but elders don't lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Jesus here is not denying that there are people who will serve in these offices or serve in positions of leadership like this, what he's, and he's not warning against calling your dad uh, uh, father. He's, he's not warning against that. What he is warning about is creating hierarchies in the church, assuming that because you have one of these roles, you have a higher position and are worthy of higher uh, credit, higher applause, higher esteem. Now, why would he be concerned about that? A couple of reasons. Number one, when you assume that you have a superior position over others, you are in competition with Jesus. You are putting yourself in competition with Jesus. Notice he says, don't be called rabbi. You have one teacher. Don't call anyone father because there's one father. Don't be called instructor because you have one instructor. He alone is worthy of that sort of devotion. He alone is worthy of that sort of honor. He alone is worthy of that sort of esteem. This passage should make some men in Rome very nervous. Now, but you may say, well, come on. There are people in my life who I just esteem. I just esteem them because they're so much further down the road in following Jesus than I am. Or, or they're so much older than I am. I just, I just esteem them. Or, or, you know, that guy's got three doctorates. Shouldn't we call him Dr. Who's he, what's it? I mean, they're just so far down the road. I mean, what about it? Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus is not trying to introduce less decorum into our culture. Our culture does not need any help in being less respectful, right? But what Jesus is doing is he's making the comparison between that person you esteem and Jesus. I mean, they may be a little bit further down the road than you are, but think about Jesus. Compared to Jesus, none of us have yet graduated from preschool. Jesus is not trying, this passage is not trying to uh, make us less respectful uh, or impolite. This passage is trying to magnify the worth of Jesus and cultivate the love we have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's actually the second reason why Jesus warns us about hierarchy in the church. You're competing with Jesus. Don't do that. And secondly, you're minimizing the brotherhood within the church. Verse 8 says, you are all brothers. You are all brothers and sisters. There are hierarchical places in the world. The military is a hierarchical institution. But the body of Christ is not a hierarchical institution. This, uh, this evening, I'll have the great privilege of baptizing one of my daughters. It'd be a great privilege to do that. And uh, uh, 
uh, my relationship with her will still be out. She will still be my daughter. I will still be her father. But baptism is the public announcement that more than just my daughter, she is by public proclamation of baptism now eternally and forever my sister in Christ. So whoever gets baptized, regardless of who it is, whether it's your son, your grandfather, your uncle, your nephew, your cousin, preeminently and more importantly, they are your brother in Christ. This is a picture of Charles Evans Hughes. Charles Evans Hughes was the 11th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He started his service as Chief Justice in 1930. His father was from Wales. His father was a Baptist preacher in Wales who was inspired by Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and moved to the United States. Uh, he got married when he got here and, he mar- uh, and gave birth. They had several children. Charles Evans Hughes was one of them. And he was a well-known attorney in the United States. He was governor of the state of New York. He was an associate justice. He was the secretary of state. He ran for president once. Um, but in 1930, he was appointed as chief justice. He was a faithful follower of Jesus. And when he and his wife moved to Washington, D.C., they joined a Baptist church. And just like we do, uh, that Baptist church, when it was time uh, for, to welcome new members, they would call the new members down to the front and have them stand uh, and be introduced. And the first Sunday, uh, that, when Charles Evans Hughes was introduced as a member of the church, the first person who was introduced that day, there's a long list, first person that was introduced that day was a man by the name of Ah Singh. Ah Singh had recently moved to Washington, D.C. from uh, San Francisco. He was an immigrant to the United States. Uh, he was from China, and uh, it, it's a stereotypical, often an ugly stereotype, but Ah Singh really was, by profession, a laundryman. He worked in a Chinese laundry, and he had moved from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. to take up this job, this low-paying, ill-esteemed, hard work. Ah Singh came down. He was the first one introduced as the new member of this Baptist church, and he stood on one side of the platform from the pulpit. There were 12 more people that were introduced after Ah Singh as members, and all 12 of them stood on the other side of the pulpit on the other side of the platform until Charles Evans Hughes, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, was introduced. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes, the man who everybody stands up when he walks in the room. And Charles Evans Hughes walked down the center aisle and came and stood right next to Ah Singh. Because Charles Evans Hughes understood that in the church of Jesus Christ, we are brothers. There is no difference between us based on our education, our ethnicity, our occupation, our social economic status, our education. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why on the basis of this passage, I read it. I'm very happy when people in the church call me Joel. Pastor Joel, if you must, Reverend Divini, never. (laughs) I tried to convince my students when I taught at Lancaster Bible College on the basis of this passage to call me Joel. (laughs) Ironically enough, one of them, when um, a couple times, the word Divini doesn't, uh, they put my name on papers Professor Divini, and spell check is not your friend when it comes to the name Divini, because either it says Professor Divine, which is not that bad, or (laughs) Professor Deviancy. That would be the other one that was on. I tried to get, uh, you know, uh, educational institutions are hierarchical, I understand that, but listen, we're studying the Bible at Lancaster Bible College, right? 
you can call me Joel. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get over it. Couldn't, they couldn't, it just, they couldn't do it. There's nothing but level ground at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters. Who am I, who am I to stand next to Jesus and have any title at all? You notice in verse 11 and 12, as this passage ends, verse 11 is the, the, the pattern. The greatest among you will be your servant. It's fitting because the greatest servant of all is the Lord Jesus, and he is the greatest of all. And then verse 12, the promise, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted in that great day to come. Brothers and sisters in this church, in this assembly of followers of Jesus, let nobody act too big and let nobody act too small. Let everybody act because of Jesus, medium. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus, our Savior. He is the one who came and uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for uh, many. Oh, Father, we confess to you that um, we live and breathe in hierarchical circles. And uh, we love the, the best seats. And we love elaborate greetings. And, and no one in this room wants to be thought of poorly. We, we want to be thought of well. And we confess to you, Lord, that we esteem these things often at the cost of our servanthood of the Lord Jesus. So forgive us. And, and I do pray to you, our great Lord, our suffering Savior, that you would help us to follow you faithfully and be great by being small. Lord, you are worthy of our highest devotion and, and, and we offer it to you because you have loved us first. And we look forward to that day of exaltation that is coming when the Lord Jesus returns. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.